Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I don't know what this last week was like for some of y'all. It's kind of a, a chill week with, you know, the, uh, having New Year's Day on a Wednesday. Most of you got to watch football, maybe clean out your garage. I had a day off, I hope. I hope your employer gave you that day off. And so it makes the week, you know, a little slower. And so you come in here and we start a new series. I might be like, you ready to dive into God's Word? I don't know what you've done. I did a little shopping. You know, you get gift cards or different things for Christmas. And I don't know how you shop, but when I shop, it's kind of hunting. I'm hunting for the best deal. And so I'll go into a store. I know some of you, some of the guys here, you've told me before, you've got a threshold that when you're buying a shirt for yourself, there's a dollar amount. If it's not below that dollar amount, you're not buying it. You're hunters, okay? And so you you go and hunt. And so I'm going to the store. You never get the display stuff. That's never on sale, FYI. You got to go to the stuff that's not folded, that's in the back. It's on the clearance rack. It's like the sale, sale. It went on sale, and then they marked it down from the sale price. That's where I go. And so I'm filtering through at this one store, the sale rack, it's a clearance rack, and I come to this long sleeve t-shirt. Not the season for that, which is another way you get a great deal. And so I grab that, and I'm like, I don't have a long sleeve t-shirt. This looks good. I even tried it on, which is like a lot of effort when you're shopping. And it was so cheap. I was like, they're basically giving this away. I bought the shirt, put it in my bag, hang out with the family the rest of the day, get back to my bedroom, take the shirt out of the bag. It's the first time I've seen the back of the shirt. The back of the shirt says something on it. I didn't realize. We've got a picture. It says, Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> I said, Shanna. I called Shanna. I was like, I just bought a shirt that says, Happy Hanukkah. She literally fell on the bed laughing at me. I said, don't worry. I'll take it back for you in a couple days. Okay, so a couple days later, she's at the store. I'm at work. I get this text message. So the store would not let me return or exchange your shirt. It was on final clearance. So... Happy Hanukkah. (laughs) Say I won't wear it. I'll wear it. What happened? What happened was I didn't see accurately. And you've probably had that before in your life. Like, remember times where you just didn't see something? They get something stuck in your teeth and you didn't realize it. And then you realize everybody you talk to isn't really your friend. (laughs) Or maybe you didn't see accurately. You got in a fender bender. You drove into something, didn't realize the garbage cans were at the end of the driveway, whatever the thing was. Maybe you had mistaken identity. I've had it before where, you know, some blonde lady standing out in the lobby. I'll walk up, like, I'm going to put my arm around her. Hey, baby. You know, this woman I've been married to for almost 20 years. It's a total stranger. I'm like, hey, how are you? You have these things where we don't see accurately, and there's these anecdotal moments that can be embarrassing, sometimes cause difficulty in our lives. But what if we see all of life wrong? See, today we're starting this series called Upside Down. And what some of you expect me to do is then walk us through the scripture and see how Jesus tells us to do things that are upside down from this world. It's better to give than receive or or turn the other cheek or different things that Jesus says. You want to save your life, lose your life. That's not what this sermon series is. What we're going to see, Lord willing, as we walk through this sermon that Jesus himself preached is that the world that we're living in is what's actually upside down. We live in a world that says that sin is normal. And that being righteous is weird, if not wrong. And that's not what God intended. And so the question we got to ask ourselves, like, what if, what if I'm following the world's path, but I'm pursuing Jesus, what if you're being faithful to a version of Christianity that doesn't even lead you to Christ? What if we're following a path in our lives that ultimately is going to lead to emptiness? What if we're going to stand on judgment day one day, and we're going to be before God and say, you wasted your life? What if, what if we're going down this the thing that we think is faithful to God that's the exact opposite of what God intended for us? That's what happens if we follow the world's path, 
even in the name of Jesus. And so what he does in this sermon is he shows us this world is what's upside down, and he shows us the right way of living. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start with the introduction of his sermon, which is the first 12 verses. Really today, we're going to look at the first three verses of that introduction. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll get the whole intro down, and eventually we'll be in the content of this sermon. But Matthew chapter 5 is where we're at today. What's going on, and since we're jumping in, not in the first chapter of this book, but what's happening contextually here is that in Matthew chapter 1 is a Christmas story. Jesus comes to be Emmanuel, God with us. And then in chapter 4, he starts his earthly ministry. So the first sermon he preaches, the first words out of his lips in his public teaching, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and he says this, hey, you're heading the wrong direction. Turn back to God. The Bible word is repent. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you'll see that Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Some of the other Bible authors use the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. Matthew's being sensitive to his Jewish listeners as he's writing this to a Jewish audience, and they don't use the name of God. They wouldn't speak the name. So he says the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom? Kingdom's not language we usually use. It means this, the rule and reign of God. So turn back. You're going the wrong direction. Turn. The rule and reign of God is here. It's with the arrival of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And then what you see in verse 18 through 22 is that Jesus calls his first followers to come follow him. There's some fishermen. They drop their nets. They come follow Jesus. And then what happens next is incredible because Jesus heals some people. Now listen, Jesus is healing people all over the Gospels. Everywhere he goes, he doesn't heal everyone. Let me be clear about that. Sometimes there's a large crowd, thousands of people, and he heals one. There's a pool of people, and, and there's, they're all waiting to get in the water because they think mysteriously that's going to heal them. Jesus walks up, heals one guy. But what happens next in this passage is he goes into Galilee and heals everybody. Every disease, every ailment, everything that's happening. So here's what's happening. Jesus is at the pinnacle of his popularity. Let me read you chapter 4 to set the context for what we're about to read in this sermon. In, in, in chapter 4, we'll look at verse uh, 23 through 25. It says, And he went... Throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the rule and reign of God, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread, yeah, no kidding, his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So here's the summary of that. Jesus is really popular. There's huge crowds that are following him around. And within those crowds, what we're going to see as we walk through chapter 5 through 7 is there's three different types of people. One are the people that he just called in chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. They're followers of his. They dropped their nets. They followed him. And the followers are people who are actually committed to Jesus. So they're not just hanging around looking for benefits. They're, they're like, I'm with him. I'm following that. Wherever he leads, that's where I'm going. Those are the followers. The next group is the crowd. And that's, that's the mass number. That's the majority of people. The crowd are not against Jesus. They're kind of neutral with Jesus. They haven't committed themselves to following him, but they want to get a benefit from him. So maybe they want their legs healed, or maybe they want their marriage fixed, or maybe they want some, him to solve a... a, a debate about the inheritance in their family, or maybe they want some advice on how to run their business, or maybe they want to be able to see and they're blind. There's all kinds of people in there, and they're not against Jesus, but they haven't committed their lives to him. They want some benefits from Jesus. And there's the third group. The third group we're really going to get into when we get into the content. He says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. 
you've heard it said, but I say to you. And those are the enemies of Jesus. Some people might not like that language. We'll call them opponents. They're the most religious. And they want to have a religion that helps them sleep at night, that controls their behavior that they're in control of, and Jesus wants to get after their hearts. And what you're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is continually going, starts at the heart. He doesn't start at the behavior. He's going after your heart. And in our audience today, in this room, all three audiences, are, all three of those people are represented. There are people here that are genuine followers of Jesus, and you want to know how to grow in your relationship with Jesus. Well, he says that if you're making disciples, you're supposed to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is the heart of what Jesus taught, is his own sermon. This is going to be great for you. Some of you are in the crowd, and you haven't committed your life to Jesus, but you're not against Jesus. Maybe you've attended church your whole life, and you want some benefits. I hope that God uses this sermon that we're going to walk through the next several weeks to have you, have you actually follow Jesus. And some of you, you don't even know it yet, but you're opponents of Jesus. And I hope that God opens your eyes that you can see that and that you would forsake your religion and, and commit your life to Christ. Let's look at what he says when he preaches. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 just to give you the, the full picture here, but really focus on verses 1 through 3. So these huge crowds, he's the pinnacle of his popularity. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then some people think this next one's another beatitude. That a beatitude is just a word, a Latin word for blessing. But I think it's just commentary on the one we just read. Verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you can see why this looks upside down in this world. Because... Blessed, and we all want to be blessed. Everyone wants to be blessed. But blessed are the poor, the persecuted, the hungry, the hated, the pure. That's the opposite of what we oftentimes think of. And what Jesus is doing, we're going to see it when we get a little bit later in chapter 5. You've heard it said, but I tell you, he's showing people the way you're seeing things, it's wrong. My hope for you, as we go through this, is the same hope that I believe Jesus had for the people he was preaching to. That you'll have a moment where God turns the light on. Kind of like, like an inventor will call it. Eureka moment, right? Aha! I've found it. I've discovered this, this thing. Whether it's, you know, how the microwave works or penicillin. If you start reading inventors and how they discover stuff, it's usually in moments they don't expect. Like I was reading uh, this week, and I'm not a math guy. I'll probably slaughter this dude's name. Archidemes. Who discovered the Archidemes principle. Some of you are math people, and you know what I'm talking about. It was a guy that, he was a, an ancient Greek mathematician, and he was trying to figure out how to measure irregular shapes. And he got in the bathtub and realized you could use water to measure irregular shapes. And he jumped out of the bathtub, started running through the streets in Italy, yelling, Eureka, Eureka, which is a Greek word, which means I found it. Problem was, he didn't get dressed when he got out of the bathtub. He was running through the streets naked. So imagine if you're an Italian and you see this Greek dude running through the streets yelling, in Greek, I found it, I found it. What are you thinking to yourself? Not your bathrobe, buddy. What did you find? Like he's so excited about this new insight, he's unaware of the other stuff around him. 
I hope that happens for you. As we're walking through this sermon, that God opens your eyes to see that the way that you've maybe been seeing the entire world is not the way that God wants you to see it. And he shows us something that looks foreign to us when we're used to operating according to this world. Because he's talking about living under his kingdom. Remember, kingdom means under his rule and reign. And so our first point today is simply this, that kingdom living promises what we all pursue. Kingdom living promises what we're all on a pursuit of. And you see it here in this sermon. So you go back to this sermon. Try and imagine you're there that day. Maybe you're in the crowd. And, and you see what happens in verse 1 is that, that Jesus sits down to teach. And so he's on this mountain, and he, he comes up, and he sits down. So try and think about that. You have thousands of people, no microphones, probably got a water at his background that gives them amplification to be able to speak to these people. And what would happen is that Jewish teachers, when they would read the Scriptures, they would always stand. But when they would expound on the Scriptures, they would always sit down. So you're in the crowd, and then Jesus sits. Imagine that. Jesus sits down, and he starts to t- decide to teach and talk and And maybe you just were one of those paralyzed people. Your legs didn't work, and this guy sits down, and he's going to start expounding on the scriptures? You want to know what he has to say. Like, you're hooked on his every word. Maybe you're one of the enemies, though, and you think to yourself, I I don't believe what he's going to say about the scriptures. He's going to twist the scriptures. And so you want to hear what he has to say so you can show how he's wrong. Or maybe you're in the crowd, and you're just curious. Maybe this is what I came for. Maybe this is the blessing that I want. And then he he goes to preach. It says in verse 1 that he sat down. It says in verse 2. The only thing verse 2 says is that Jesus began to speak. But verse 3 shows the first word of the sermon. What's the first word of the sermon? You tell me. Blessed. All right, who doesn't want that? The blessed life. Anybody pay attention to social media? Hashtag blessed. Somebody puts a picture of their feet. I don't need to see y'all's feet on social media, just (laughs) FYI. Their feet and then like the ocean. And you're like, hashtag blessed. And you're like, jerk, scroll to the next one. Because you're sitting in your cubicle, right, as you read that. And then somebody, somebody gets engaged to show their ring. Hashtag blessed. You know, they got their, all that. So that's like what the stuff we think of for blessing. But then Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Huh? What kind of blessing are you talking about? It's interesting if you actually look at, at what he says in the scriptures here. He uses a word that's different than what we oftentimes think of for blessing. Or some of your translations say happiness. It's the Greek word makarios. So it's a Greek word here in the New Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it's got roots in the Old Testament. And what it's talking about is actually a happiness beyond circumstances. See, most of us, we experience happiness like, I got a day off in the middle of the week. This is, I feel happy. I'm glad I don't have to go to work. You go to a barbecue. This is good barbecue sauce. I'm happy that I'm in the like, We all know that's temporary stuff. So then when bad stuff happens, that happiness flees. It's gone. The kind of makarios happiness that we're talking about It's the kind of happiness this world can't touch. It's what we're actually all on a pursuit of. And we do different things to get it, but we're all going after it. But most of us, it doesn't work. I read an article this week in uh, USA Today. Let me read you a section of it. It cites some studies. I didn't even know these studies existed. But it's about happiness. It says, happiness may frequently change depending on numerous factors, including social, financial, and health status. Overall life satisfaction in the United States fell by 6%. I was thinking, where's my happiness meter when I heard that? Between 2007 and 2018, according to the latest World Happiness Report, I'm like, I didn't know there was such a thing. I've heard of Gallup, though. It says, according to the 2019 Gallup Wellbeing Index, which is based on responses from more than 115,000 U.S. adults aged 18 and older, happiness in the United States has been on a steady decline since 2016. 
2017, 21 states showed declines in well-being, and no state improved. The factors that played the biggest role in this year's rankings were relationship-related. Depression rates are up, and so is daily stress and worry, and you can keep reading the article. They talk about jobs and all kinds of different stuff in the article. But here's the reality. We're all in this pursuit of this thing, and it's not working. So let me ask you this question. What is it in your life that you would need? And don't answer this back, because there will be hundreds of different answers. To be happy. And some people think a happy marriage. Happy wife's happy life. Proverbial. Some of you think if I had a better job, or if I had this job, or if I had this much money, or if I could go on this vacation, if I had more sex, if I could do these things, if I had this car, if I got this thing fixed, if these people would leave me alone, like whatever their thoughts are. But you notice that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are well-traveled. Blessed are those who have a good marriage. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mourning. Blessed are the, the hated, persecuted. Blessed are the righteous. If I could have all my hedonistic desire. Blessed are the, this is the exact opposite of what many of us are pursuing. And you see the way that he's written these out. They all have the exact same structure. So zoom out and look at all these together. They all, it starts off with that word, makarios, true, deep, inner happiness. The blessing is pronounced. And then the identity of who's blessed, poor, mourning, hungry, different peacemakers, different folks. And then the ending, and they seem like they're all different. It says, for they will be comforted. They will receive mercy. They will be called sons of God. They'll see God. Like there's different things there. But I want you to back out a little bit more and notice the overall structure of this, that the first one and the last one are exactly the same. Different identity, same statement, blessed, makarios, are the persecuted, are the poor in spirit. Verse 3 and verse 10, if you've got your Bible, you can look at both of them. But then look at the reward is the same. For, here's why they're blessed. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both of those are in the present tense. All the other ones are future. Merciful, they will receive mercy. Peacemakers will be called the sons of God. But the first one and the last one are, this is. And so here's the reality of all these blessings. They're happening now. When Jesus comes, he's inaugurated, he's started, he's brought this in. But they are not going to be fully realized until we're with God in eternity. They're present and they're future at the same time. They're already happening, not yet fully realized. But notice it's interesting that there's the first one and the last one. Why would I give the exact same reward? This is a literary device that... that Bible scholars call inclusio. We just call it the envelope effect. Kind of fold it together. You start with something, you end with something, and what that means is everything in between is commentary on that. In fact, Matthew does this throughout his book, if you start noticing it. If, you're, if you were around in Christmas time, you know that the book starts off, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, when Joseph is told that Jesus is Emmanuel, God, with us. It's his presence. And then the very last verses of Matthew what happens is that Jesus is giving us, as his followers, those of you who are genuine followers of him, he gives you a job. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter if you're a lawyer. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor. It doesn't matter if you're a janitor. It doesn't matter if you're, what you do. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor. Like, none of that stuff matters. Here's your job as a believer. Make disciples. Wherever you go, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them about everything I've commanded you. And I am with you always. Oh, interesting, the book starts with God's presence, then ends with the promise of his presence, because everything in between is about what it's like for Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us, and then what does Jesus say? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with, he's going to be a helper to you, he's going to be with you. The whole book is showing us his presence. What does it look like for God to dwell among us and be with us? 
And so he uses the inclusio. Starts with it, ends with it, everything in between is commentary on it. That's how this sermon is structured. For theirs is the rule and reign of God. Currently, presently, in their lives. Is happening right now. Who? The people that are mentioned in these blessings is describing what it looks like to live the kingdom life. What it looks like to live a life under the rule and reign of God. What it looks like to live a life of someone who's turned to him. You are going the wrong direction. I'm calling you in a new way. The repentant life. You can call it lots of things. It's the Christian life. Not the Americanized version. The one Jesus presents. And so what does he say? How do we experience that? Takes us to our second point. It's this. Kingdom living is a path few will travel. Kingdom living promises what we're all in pursuit of, real happiness, makarios, happiness. We're all in the pursuit of happiness. Few of us are doing it. We keep doing the same thing. We keep getting the same thing. Maybe Jesus has got a different way, but few people will take that way because kingdom living is a path that few travel. See, here in America, we act like, and we do this in the church even, this isn't just like a condemnation on culture, that everybody who dies, they're going to heaven. They believe the right thing. If you said the right things, if you prayed some prayer, if you got the facts down, then we're going to talk about how you're in heaven now, regardless of how terrible your life was or all that kind of stuff. That's just not what Jesus says. And that's a problem because Jesus is the way to heaven. And so what he says about heaven is pretty important. In this very sermon, in Matthew chapter 7, he says this in verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That's where the majority of people are headed. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So who are the few? Who are these few? And the answer is not what some religious guy on the stage tells you. Like, what does the Bible say? What did Jesus say? Well, our context tells us the answer. The very first word, out of his mouth, when he's preaching, repent. So it's the people who've repented. What is repentance? When I hear the word repentance, to be honest with you, if I'm removed myself from like preaching and church environment, when I hear the word repent, I think of some dude on roller skates with a sandwich board on, talking about the end of the world with a bullhorn. Repent! And it's like, that guy's an idiot. Don't listen to him. Even as a Christian, I think that. None of y'all do. Okay, you're way less judgmental than me. I understand. <laughs> but this was Jesus. Isn't that some guy who's lost his mind? This is Jesus. Repent is, you were, you were going away you thought was right. Turn back to God. And so it's the repentant. Well, who are the repentant? Well, then we see in the very next verse, verse 18, he starts to call these guys to come follow him. Verses 18 through 22. He says, you come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They're fishermen. And look at what verse 20 says, what they do. They already knew who Jesus was. It wasn't the first time they met Jesus. In verse 20, it says, immediately they left their nets. Their nets are symbolic of anything that hinders you from actually following Jesus. So for those of you that are in the crowd and you want something from Jesus but you haven't committed your life to him, what would that be for you? These guys, they drop their nets and they follow him. Now that's scary and obvious in some ways. It's scary because these guys don't know they're gonna be martyred for following Jesus, but they're saying, I'm going with you wherever you lead me. Jesus, I'm going with you. I'm in. Like, they don't know the circumstances, and here's why some of you haven't followed Jesus yet, because you know that it means stepping into unknown circumstances. But I want to ask you something. Have you ever had a transition in your life where you were stepping into circumstances, you knew how everything was going to go? Whether you're a Christian or not. Like, think about when you were a kid, the first day of school. 
you get on this big yellow tin thing, you don't know who's driving that. Like I was thinking about this the other day too. You know, I drive my kids to the bus stop sometimes and to put kids in the back of a minivan, you've got to dress them like they're getting in a fighter jet, okay? Straps and harnesses. And all. They don't even have seatbelts on the bus. They sit on a bench driving a big orange tin can, yellow tin can with a driver you don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of unknown about that. First day of school. Then you go to middle school. Do you remember middle school? Oh, no, it's traumatic. You tried to block it out of your mind. The locker room? Like, what's going to happen? Take showers with other people? Are you kidding me? Then high school, then college. College, some of you like me, you, went, you, had a, you were going to live in the same room, which wasn't very big, with somebody you never met. Like all kinds of unknown. Then you get married. That wasn't what you thought it was going to be, all you married people. Then you have kids. Like you think you know what it's going to be like to have kids before you had kids? Listen to this stat. There's 34 babies born every day in Wake County. 238 a week, 1,031 a month. They give birth at these hospitals in Wake County to over 12,000 kids a year. You'd think somebody would come up with a system where after you have the baby, a nurse, a parenting expert would come in and say, hey, when you take this human being home with you, don't do these things. Like a, like a little warning. You, get, you buy a toaster, it comes with warnings, okay? <laughs> Taking a human being home with me. You just want to know if I can strap it into its jet seat here. It's like you would think like somebody would sit down and say, hey, listen, you don't, you don't need this today, but here's a pamphlet for middle school. You need that. And I wish I had that pamphlet today, okay? Like it'd be nice to have some, some instructions on this, but you don't know. You don't know. And each one of them's different. You don't know what that's going to be like. And so you can look at what the disciples did here in following Jesus, and they didn't know they were stepping out into all the difficulty and all the excitement and eventual martyrdom of following Jesus, but you know what they knew? Jesus. You see, faith in God is not a blind faith because God has revealed himself. He's made himself known through Jesus Christ. He loves you. He came pursuing you. He's good. He never lies. There's a lot we know about God. We don't know the circumstances he's going to lead us into, but we know the one who holds the circumstances. And so we can trust him not the circumstances, but it requires faith. And that's why some remain in the crowd and some follow. And what does it look like to actually follow? That's what these beatitudes, these statements of blessings describe. That's the identity portion of it. Blessed makarios, true inner happiness is reserved only for these few. That's why so few people have it. People that actually follow Jesus. And the gate is narrow. There's few people that will experience this. But here's who they are. They're the poor in spirit. And so we won't be able to cover all these today. We'll jump into more of them next week. But let's just talk about the first one, poor in spirit. What does that mean? It's a pathway. You want to know how to, the, what the pathway is to, to true happiness? It's a pathway of poverty. And most people hear that and be like, oh, I don't sign up for that. Look at verse 3. That's what he says. Blessed, makarios, from the lips of Jesus, pinnacle of his popularity. Blessed, makarios, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense, now. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, this is not talking about financially poor, but it's good to know the difference between financial poverty, physical poverty, financial prosperity, physical wealth, because it helps you understand what's being said here. Most people in this room are not poor. You might think you're poor. You might think the guy at the end of the row, he's got more money than I got, so therefore I'm poor, and we compare ourselves to each other. Globally, poor is you make less than $2 a day. 
In America, they say that poverty, extreme poverty in America is less than 33, it's in some change, so we'll just say $34 a day. So if you make more than $34 a day, you're not poor. So there might be a couple of you that that applies to. And here's the problem, because when I give you the definition of what poverty in spirit is, if you don't know what physical poverty is, you have a hard time knowing, and you just take this Christianized version of it you put in your mind. Poverty of spirit is complete dependence upon God. And people that are physically poor have a better understanding of what poverty of spirit is because they know what real dependence is. So if you've never had to actually pray this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, and not know where your next meal's coming from, it's hard for you to understand what true dependence is. I remember when I first became a Christian, my youth pastor went on a mission trip to a really poor area of South America, and he came back, and he was giving us a report. Now, I'm a brand new Christian. Like, I had mission trips. Like, all this stuff is new to me. He tells me about being with these folks. And he said, I asked them, what do you think of American Christians? And they said, it must be really hard because you have so many distractions and so much wealth. And I remember being struck thinking, poor people in South America feel bad for us? Because it's so hard for rich people to understand trust in God because we're so tempted to trust in other things and in ourselves. In fact, Jesus has an encounter with a guy in Luke, in Luke chapter 18. A lot of people call him the rich young ruler. That's because he was wealthy and he had power and position. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, just be perfect. Summary, he gives him a list of the commandments. He goes, I've obeyed all the commandments. So he's self-deceived, because we've all broken the commandments. And then Jesus says, he knows his heart, he knows his idol. See, for the fisherman, it was a fishing net. For this guy, it's money. And so he says to this guy, go sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor. Jesus wasn't trying to get his money. He can give it away to somebody else. Then you come follow me. Same call he gave to the disciples. And the guy goes away sad. It's interesting what Jesus says to him next. I was reading it this morning. I didn't tell the tech guys I was going to do this, so I'll, just, I'll read it to you. In Luke chapter 18, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus sees that the guy's sad. In verse 23, it says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it's impossible. You can tell me there's this place, and forget it. that's not what his point was. The point is it's impossible. Those who heard it said, and who can be saved? But he said, knowing what they're thinking, What's impossible with man is possible with God. God can still teach you dependence on him. It's not a sin to have wealth. It just becomes really hard for you to ever know what true dependence is. As Jesus says in Matthew later, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, he says, unless you become like one of these children, then you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean, become like a child, not know anything? What are you talking about? Not know, child, how little was that kid? That's not his point. His point was the children were dependent. Let me tell you something else about kids. We got four of them. They're broke. <laughs> All right? They don't have any money. They, they're not coming to the world. They, they, you are like God to them when you're their parents. And here's, here's the, like thinking about the, the path of maturity for us. I'm talking to followers of Jesus right now and what it is to grow in him. But think about it from a physical standpoint. What it is, like when we, we're trying to train these kids to be independent from us, but they're so dependent on us when we first bring them home, like they need God for breath, but we're like God for everything else. They can't even clean themselves. Forget feeding. Like, we, of course you got to feed them. They can't even clean themselves. They cry. They fuss. They, they grow to a stage like ours. They can walk and talk right now. 
but they're still not independent. We go to a restaurant. I've yet to have one of my kids say, I got it, dad. <laughs> Hadn't happened because they're just kids. Kids are broke. They're broke because they're dependent. And our goal in raising them as parents oftentimes, just from our society perspective, just in just natural, practical perspective is we want to grow them to a place of independence so they can feed themselves and clean themselves and reproduce and then they get people that are dependent on them and we get to come say hi to those kids and they think we're awesome and we leave. And the goal is independence. And then we think about what happened in your spiritual journey. Those of you who have trusted Christ, Pastor Seth said when he was leading us in worship, think about how God's brought you to himself. When you came to him, you were poor in spirit. Because the only way you can come to Christ is being poor in spirit. Realizing you've got no shot at entering eternity apart from what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Your good works can't outweigh your bad works. Whatever theories you might have. Hopefully you did a good deed one time. and God can, No. We're all separated from God because of our sin. His standard is perfection. That's why he says the rich young ruler, obey every command. No one does that. Only Jesus did that. And when he died on the cross, he was exchanging your sin for his righteousness. He became sin so that you could become righteous. And in order for you to realize that, you had to realize I couldn't do this on my own. That's poverty of spirit. I bring nothing to the table. I need you. You're like a beggar. I need what you have. Give me what you have. But what happens to us as followers of Jesus is that we start to think to ourselves, I started that way, but now I'm, now I'm learning stuff. And yeah, you've got to feed yourself, and you should be able to reproduce, make disciples. But we start to grow independent of God. And so some circumstances come into our life, and we go, I got it, Dad. I'll handle this one. I'll let you know when you're needed. And so how does God grow us in dependence? Oftentimes it's painful. And it's difficult, especially wealthy people, because you don't know dependence, apart from the difficulties. I was reading this week a story, a woman named Vanitha. The story was titled, My Crumbled Marriage. I started reading it, and this woman had been through a bunch of stuff. She was born with polio, spent years in, the, in and out of the hospital, basically living at the hospital when she was a young girl. Then in grade school, she got bullied. And then she ends up getting married. They had four miscarriages. Then when they had a baby, they ended up their first baby. They buried a son as an infant. And so she said, I thought I was ready for basically anything. Like she had become tough through all the tough circumstances in her life. And then she said what happens in her late 30s, they got two daughters at this point. She's homeschooling these two daughters. She goes to the doctor. The doctor says, you have post-polio syndrome. And I didn't know anything about it until I was reading her story. But she said in her story that that meant that she was going to get increasingly weaker and that she'd lose functions in her life as life went on. And the doctor said to her, the way to prolong this is to stop doing everything but the essentials in life. So the doctor recommended to her, stop all your hobbies. Just do the essentials. By essentials, I mean this. Eat and clean yourself. He said, otherwise, in 10 years, you're going to be in a wheelchair and you're not going to be able to feed yourself. And so she stopped doing basically everything but the essentials. At about year six, she started to get weaker. And then her husband came to her and said, I'm leaving. Within two weeks, he was living in another state. They'd been married for 17 years. And she said, I thought I'd be ready for anything. And this left her terrified and bewildered. And she said her world started to fall apart. Her two daughters said, we don't believe in your God. How could he even be real? And these things happening, constant fighting in their house. She said every night she'd cry herself to sleep. And then she even whispered to God, do you even love me? And then she started reading the scriptures out of desperation one night. And she went to one of my favorite passages, John chapter 11. John chapter 11 tells a story of how Jesus has a friend who gets sick. His name's Lazarus. 
Lazarus' sister is named Mary and Martha, and Jesus is friends with all of them. And the Bible says that Jesus loved Mary and loved Martha and loved Lazarus. Therefore, every word in the Bible is important. Therefore, he delayed for two days when he heard the news that his friend was sick. And she thought to herself, love rescues. Love responds. Love runs too. Love doesn't delay. She never thought of this kind of love before. And she knew that, God, you can bring my husband back. You can change my daughter's heart. You can heal my disease. Where are you? It was delaying. And so she started diving into the Scriptures more. She goes to Moses. See the, Moses seeing the glory of God. And she realizes he's a God who's abounding in love, slow to anger, gracious. She starts talking about how these things that to her before were just intellectual became incredibly personal. Do you know what God was doing in her life? Deepening her dependence on him. Growing her poverty of spirit. And here's the reality of the story. Husband doesn't come back. See, a lot of times you hear stories in church, and it's like you're waiting for that moment. It's like he comes back, and then he gets saved, and everything's awesome. That's not oftentimes how life goes. But God was still good in it because God used it to drive her to himself. And she said, while I was waiting to be rescued, God was trying to reveal himself to me. And he revealed himself in ways she had never experienced before. See, the path to poverty of spirit is oftentimes painful, but it's where true happiness is. This is the rule and reign of God in your life is. And what you see when you start looking through the Bible as a whole, look at Gideon, look at David. David, what does God want? A broken spirit, a contrite heart is what he wants. How does he get that? When we're thinking everything's great and I'm independent and I got it, Dad, we're not highly dependent. What it is, the path that the followers go on, that they travel on, that they follow, is a path of complete and total dependence. That's poverty of spirit. And theirs is the rule and reign of God. And so let me just talk to you as different members of the, the congregation today and probably the audience in Jesus' day. We know for sure the audience in Jesus' day. If you're a follower of Jesus, what do you, how do you respond to something like this? Well, here's the deal. Rejoice. Makarios, the true happiness that everyone else is going after in this world and taking all kinds of paths. You're being promised this by Jesus Christ, that it is yours and it can't be taken from you. Now, the pathway to experience it may be incredibly painful for you, but it's yours. If you're, if you're in the crowd, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not against Jesus, maybe you just attend church or maybe you just kind of like believe these things about God, but you're not following him. Can I ask you this? What's stopping you? What's hindering you from following Jesus today? And maybe you don't do it today, but count the cost tomorrow. Maybe it's like the rich young ruler, it's your money. Maybe it's a fisherman. Maybe I'm going to lose my business. What the fisherman had was good, but there was better. And maybe you're an opponent of Jesus, and God started to show you that today. Let me just ask you this. What if you're wrong? What if your religion is just a religion? Maybe you're following one that's part of this culture, but one that you made up helps you sleep at night because you're in control of all of it. And what Jesus really wants is your heart. Maybe you'll see it. 